I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's sticks? Their wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate? I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. Well, let me back up for a second, Gary. This is a food podcast. No, I know. I'm okay. familiar, yeah. Okay, good, good. Yeah. So, um, yeah. you know. And I, I, I also have a theory on the word spork that I want to put a bookmark in. So, l- l- so, let's do so it. Let's, can, let's, you want to do that right now? Yeah, because I don't want to forget. Okay. The first time I heard somebody refer to the cafeteria spoon fork as a, as a spork, I thought, wow, that is, I didn't know, I didn't know the word portmanteau yet. Right. Because it, it, there weren't that many portmanteaus. <laughs> so I found that very clever. I was like, oh, a spoon and fork. And I remember th- there was something that bugged me about it, and I wasn't able to articulate it. And then I realized it last summer. I said, oh, the reason I never cared for the that portmanteau was because it was an inaccurate depiction of the fork's contribution to that utensil. Okay. <laughs> and so the fork is not... It's not doing half the work. It's it's not half the utensil. It's mostly spoon. And so I think if they were to be <laughs> if they were to be honest with the contribution of fork to the what we know as the spork, it would not be called the the spork. It would be called and I and I'll need complete silence for this. Okay, it would be called the spoon. Because you cannot gain purchase with the tines of a spork on any food more durable than uh, raviolis, <laughs> which is the singular form of ravioli that I've just in- invented. I'm hoping it'll take off like the spork did. <laughs> This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Before we get into this week's show, I gotta tell you what's coming next week. We're launching Anything's Possible. It's a four-part series about the making of my first cookbook. It's basically a sequel to Mission Impossible, so if you love that, you're gonna love this. There's gonna be lots of Janie, lots of the kids. And I'm gonna take you inside the cookbook process, from the highs and lows of recipe testing to a research trip across Italy to the agonizing decisions over the design of the cover. By the end, you'll never look at a cookbook the same way again. While you get psyched for that, I want to remind you that my Anything's Possible tour kicks off in just a few weeks. I'm hitting the road. These are live sporkful tapings and book signings. It starts in New York City, where I'll be in conversation with YouTube star Claire Saffitz, then Chicago with Joanne Lee Molinaro, the Korean vegan, Twin Cities with Ann Kim, Atlanta, Miami, D.C., and more. Get tickets and info at sporkful.com tour. I can't wait to see you on the road. Okay, let's get to the show. Gary Gullman is the kind of comic that other comics love. He's obsessive about language and the craft of comedy. He's been doing stand-up for 30 years, and he's one of only a handful of people who've done sets on every single late-night show. Early in his career, Gary did so many bits about food, he jokingly called himself a strictly food-based comic. He did a lot of observational comedy, like in this 2006 bit about Fig Newtons. When I was a, let me tell you a little story. When I was a kid, you could only get figs in your Newtons. 
And I'm proud of them because they've turned the Newton industry on its ass. I am so proud of them because you could only get figs, which is a pretty, I give them credit for that. That's a pretty bold move to dedicate your entire product line to the fig of all fruits. I've never, a fig, I've never seen a fig outside of a Newton in my life. A fig could walk down those steps right now and I'd be dumbfounded. About 10 years ago, Gary's comedy started to evolve in a new direction. And the role of food in his act started changing too. Today, we're going to talk about that evolution. But first, a little backstory. Gary grew up in a Jewish family in Peabody, Massachusetts in the 70s and 80s. His parents were divorced, and Gary and his two older brothers lived with their mom. She worked at the Hallmark store in the mall, and she sometimes brought Gary along with her. I couldn't really hang out in the store because the boss would be there and he'd frowned upon the babysitting that was going on. (laughs) And I was eight or nine years old, and I would wander the mall from Toys R Us to Musicland to bookends, and then I made friends with the kids that worked at the Orange Julius. They were teenagers, and they saw me so frequently, and I bought so many hot dogs there that I I eventually, they gave me an account. And and then if their manager wasn't there, they would give me free hot dogs and julii. And it, it was just this, this great, and pretzels also. That it was a it was a great scene, man. It was it was a good time to eat because I wasn't aware of the detrimental effects of hot dogs on my. <laughs> I'm still not aware of them. Are there? No, <laughs> I haven't read about that. They're, they're pure poison, I think. <laughs> I'm still standing. Okay. Um. So for for folks of a younger generation, they may not know the Orange Julius. Like it, it was sort of like a, a creamsicle flavored beverage. Yeah, like, yeah. But they also had a pineapple version and a strawberry version. They had a a, a powder that was um, proprietary. Probably there was a there, there was probably a Coke formula aspect <laughs> to the well, so, to the formula. So I was so curious, you know, getting okay. ready to chat with you. I I went on the the website, nice. and this is the description of the of how they make an orange Julius, the ingredients. It says, real orange, this is in capital R, capital O, real orange blended together with a secret ingredient <laughs> <laughs> to orange Julius frothy perfection. Yeah. Capitalized. Yeah, that's odd. But there's a there's a word that you expect to come after real orange that is conspicuous. <laughs> yes. <laughs> conspicuously absent in the description. That's so interesting. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a fraud. Right. <laughs> but the thing that I forgot was that it was a it was one of the early blender drink shops. Outside of a bar, you didn't really you didn't really get a lot of blended drinks. And now, of course, with with Jamba Juice and and every store and, and the frappuccino, also the frappuccino. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever worked in a in a blended drink I have location. Not. I waited See, tables, I worked at, but I didn't do that. Yeah, I worked at a Starbucks, and if there were two or more people who wanted frappuccino, <laughs> and I was by myself, I would I would be tempted to close the shop. <laughs> Because I would get so behind, and I, and I was slow to begin with. I hardly ever order any kind of blended drink, but when I do, I I tip. I leave a twenty because I know I know how horrific, really I know how horrifically <laughs> arduous that that position is. And I'm all for a good tipping, but twenty dollars on a frappuccino is very t- generous. The twenty is a new five. My dad was very generous with tipping. No matter how broke we were, frequently it was about an $8 meal between me and him at IHOP, and he would leave a a five. And and so doing the math, that's what I'm valued at. It's probably a 20 is, is, is the equivalent nowadays. Yeah. 
Money was something Gary noticed a lot when he was a kid because his family didn't have a lot of it. They never went hungry or lost their housing, but they did sometimes struggle to pay their gas or electric bills. They were on food stamps, and Gary got free lunch at school. Meanwhile, some of his friends were going out to a nearby restaurant where jackets were required. They would go as a, as a family, and I, I remember thinking, oh man, that would be so swanky, but not only could we, we probably not afford the meal, the, the clothing <laughs> required, to, required to get in would, would be cost prohibitive. In the 90s, Gary got into the Boston comedy scene. Eventually, he moved to L.A., and in 1999, he did his first set on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Early on, Gary saw an opportunity to make jokes about food. There weren't a lot of comedians talking about food who weren't really talking about being overweight. John Panette, who is a legend in, in Boston, had these great jokes about the buffet and how much he liked to eat, but essentially they were jokes mocking himself for being so overweight. And then you had Jerry Seinfeld, who, who talked a little bit about breakfast cereal on the on the Seinfeld show and, and seemed to have some food jokes. But the thing that I insisted on when I first started doing comedy was it was being original. And so I found this was sort of an inefficiency in the market, that there weren't a lot of comedians who were talking about food. They were mostly talking about drinking, drugs, sex, dating. I really was able to to write a lot of, of food jokes. Probably my first album, there were probably 20 minutes of jokes. One was like a 10-minute diatribe called The Hierarchy of Cookies, in which I examined every, every cookie I could think of. And then there was this other one about my disdain for the grapefruit. So I love grapes, hate grapefruit, hate it. Isn't that interesting? That they have such similar names. No similar properties. Grape, delicious, a masterpiece. Way to go, God. Grapefruit, vile. Inedible. So bad it should be a vegetable. I hate the grapefruit. The only reason the grapefruit was even invented, the only reason was because God wanted us to have something to compare the size of a tumor to. That's the only reason. There's only one fruit that the grapefruit cannot destroy, won't destroy. The grape. Another reason to love the grape, because the grape had the courage, the guts, the balls, if I may, to say to, say to grapefruit, hey, stay the hell back. I've got a reputation to uphold, okay? I'm the grape. I'm doing very well for myself, and you're not going to screw it up for me, okay? I'm in everything. I'm in jelly. I'm in jam. I'm in juice. I'm in soda. I'm in gum. I'm in wine. Even when I'm dead, I'm a raisin. Yeah. Yeah, I don't go rotten. I go raisin. How's that? The default approach for most comedians of that time was to take something and, and shit on it, whether it be McDonald's or certain ice cream. And I thought, well, I'll be different by saying I love this. I love this thing, especially if it's something that's not appreciated. I went on this polemic about the the grapefruit, but then I realized what my, what my approach usually was, and I said, well, I, I can't go 
all negative, I have to talk about these other fruits that are so much better and 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 how the grapefruit is. Also, a, is, I mean, how much of a backlash? Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, <laughs> I know, I know. Is it an anti-grapefruit screed right, right, going to provoke? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Does yeah. anybody, I, mean, I, I will enjoy a grapefruit once in a while. I mean, I, I've acquired more of a taste for, right. tart, for tart flavors in yeah. my older age, but like, I don't know that I'm ever like, oh yeah, right. let's get into this grapefruit. I mean, I probably haven't had one, so I've never given myself this opportunity to acquire the taste, but- Wait, you've I, never had a grapefruit? No, but I-, I Wait, I, whoa, whoa, wait, whoa. Wait, wait, well, you wrote I've this tasted whole- grapefruit juice. Okay. Yeah, I, f- I feel I did enough research to, okay. to make a to make an informed okay, fair enough, an, fair an enough. informed takedown right. of the of the, <laughs> the grapefruit. <laughs> I didn't realize this was going to be a gotcha. Inter- <laughs> <laughs> Gary made his name as a comic with jokes like this grapefruit bit or the one about Fig Newtons. Sharply written, opinionated, observational comedy. But his work wasn't personal. There wasn't some deeper meaning to the jokes. Then Gary entered what I'll call Act 2 of his comedy career in the 2010s. He had already been on Last Comic Standing and he was gaining wider popularity. His jokes started becoming more long form and elaborate, winding stories with hilarious detours. And we started to see more of him in the jokes. There were hints at his own struggles with money and his indignance at some of the injustices in the world. Here's a clip from his 2012 Comedy Central special called In This Economy. There are some moments in the journey of being broke that that are, oh, suck, they suck. Like I went on a date to a nice restaurant, a decent restaurant, and um, the woman ordered something that cost market price. You know, when she goes to order, I'm keeping score on my menu. When she goes to order, I'm like, oh, ooh, market price. What, what could it be? <laughs> and you cannot ask. Do not, if you, that's a good piece of dating advice. When she orders something that's market price, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's just, let's just check in to see what market price is today because... I wanted to say to the waiter, uh, just out of curiosity and not, not because I can't afford it, uh, what did Lobster close at today? Just... <laughs> I wasn't able to contact my seafood broker at the end of trading today, and I just... I wonder how much it fluctuated because I have, a, I have an index fund that is uh, made up heavily of uh, crustaceans and other... Some, some mollusks-type, a lot of shellfish in there, which... I know it was ironic because I'm a Jew, but still, I mean. I've found it in my career, the poorer I was, the better jokes I would write about being poor. Like, and also the better jokes. Like, I found that my desperation and also the fact that it's such a, a universally understood, if if not universally empathized idea of, of being broke. People love those those stories and I, I think I think one of the great things that comedy does for good and bad is let people off the hook. And I, I think for a long time people have felt more comfortable with their own failures financially when a comedian they admire admits to to being broke or or unwise with with money. But it's it's unusual for comedians to talk about being well off 
until they're celebrities. And then there seems to be this thing where, where they tell you about the celebrities and their money management and how much money they have. And they, it just seems to be a death knell for creativity to be that out of touch financially with the average American or, That's interesting. or human. I, I, I think, I wonder what, how much of it is a matter of being out of touch and how much of it is, is that desperation is creative fuel uh-huh. If you're going to do your best work, you need to feel a little bit like it could all fall <laughs> apart at any second. Yeah. Because you need that pressure. And once you get to a point in your career where there is no pressure. I think there's some of that, but I also think that there's a, a level of pressure that is counterproductive in that it leads to anxiety and, and depression. So there's probably a, a sweet spot, but I also know that I've never— I've never been more comfortable in my career in terms of I, I I used to, every time something would go well, I would think, oh, I'll be able to pay rent for another year. And I feel like I, I'm in a position now where I, I can cover rent for the next four or five years if, if things fall apart. <laughs> Anyhow, there, there, yeah, I think there's a sweet spot of between desperation and complete fear of an imminent demise or tragic bankruptcy. <laughs> yeah. Coming up, Gary gets very far away from that sweet spot and veers into desperation when his mental health unravels. But that opens the door to a new era of his comedy when he begins using food jokes in a very different way. Stick around. Ooh, advertisements. Yummy. In the Pashman household, we're already big fans of Tillamook shredded cheese. In fact, I used it in developing many recipes in my cookbook. And now I'm getting into their ice cream. Tillamook ice cream is made with more cream, so you get smooth and dreamy scoops each time. You may not realize it, but this is why a lot of the store-bought ice cream doesn't taste the same as what you get in, like, in an ice cream parlor. But with Tillamook, they don't skimp on the cream. These people know dairy, okay? Tillamook makes a great, rich vanilla ice cream with real crushed vanilla bean seeds. They have an Oregon strawberry, sweet strawberry ice cream with ripe Oregon strawberry pieces. The one that I really love is the mudslide flavor, a smooth chocolate ice cream with a ribbon of rich fudge and chocolatey chips. You want to move the spoon around to get fudgy and chocolatey chips and the ice cream all in the same bite each time, and it's just so, so nice. And like I said, I just trust Tillamook when it comes to dairy. They make over 200 different dairy products, and the brand is farmer-owned and led by dairy experts. Find Tillamook ice cream near you at Tillamook.com. That's T-I-L-L-A-M-O-O-K.com. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool... Almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the choice hotels take care of all the other stuff too, but I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. 
I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. they got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I'm feeling great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button-down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts. Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer, Quince has your back. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sporkful to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash sporkful. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. And hey, before we get back to the show... When I set out to write my cookbook, Anything's Possible, I knew I wouldn't be able to do it alone. I needed help from people more experienced in the cookbook world. So I hired a whole team of recipe developers to work with me. And in each episode of The Sporkful this month, we're taking a few minutes to feature one of those developers so you can hear their stories and learn more about their contributions to my book. This week, I'm talking with Irene Yu. Oh, this already smells so good. Yeah. As I was looking for inspiration for the book, I came across Irene's recipe for kimchi carbonara. It was just the kind of thing I wanted for the book, a new approach to a well-worn classic. Clearly, Irene would be an ideal collaborator. As a kid, Irene ate a lot of Korean food, cooked by her mom in California, her grandma in Korea, and street vendors around Seoul. My family has always been lovers of food. We are generally people who will read about a restaurant, hear word of mouth from like, you know, fellow like Korean church people and like go find it. And then I I think we are maybe like a little bit obsessive. I know my parents, like if they find a good restaurant, they will go back over and over again until we are exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) Which, I don't know, there was like six month period when we went to El Pollo Loco for like every week (laughs) for six months. So they had a lot of Mexican food, a lot of Korean food, but Irene didn't really discover Italian food until she went to Philly for college. There's so many amazing Italian restaurants there. So like, I remember the first like thing that really opened my eyes that I ate was risotto. And I was like, this is amazing. I've never experienced anything like this before. Kind of reminded me of like Korean chuk, which is like a rice porridge. I was like, I need to learn how to make this and went home and made it over and over again until I could like do it with my eyes closed. So where Irene's parents obsessed over restaurants, Irene obsessed over recipes. 
In college and in her 20s, she became a passionate cook, learning how to make dishes from all over the world. She got a job at Food Network. But after all those years of making other people's food, something changed for her. It got to a point where I realized I was really homesick for my own, like, cultural food and Korean food in general. So that's when I started to sort of, like, meld the two. Irene started hosting pop-up dinners where she served Korean-American comfort food. In 2020, she posted her first recipe video on YouTube for kimchi carbonara. And I was so happy to work with Irene to adapt that kimchi carbonara recipe for my cookbook. I almost feel like I could go for more kimchi. Yeah? Nice. We can do that. I also wonder if, if how it would be if we left some pieces of the kimchi chopped a little right. bigger. Yeah, or bigger. Yeah, okay. I mean, I love, a, I love a big crunchy piece of cabbage. How do you feel about that? No, I like that because I think that's also a way that we can make it unique for this. I can tell you the end result is phenomenal. Mm. It's so good. Sautéing the kimchi okay. mellows the spice a little, but it still adds an acidity that just takes carbonara to another level. Irene and I also collaborated on a couple of new dishes, including linguine with miso white clam sauce. You definitely want to follow Irene on Instagram at youeating. That's Y-O-O eating. And remember that Anything's Possible is available for pre-order right now. Pre-orders are the best way to support authors, so I really appreciate all of you who've already done it. We also have options to pre-order a signed copy of the book with or without a pasta gift set. Everyone who pre-orders gets invited to a special Zoom cooking class that I'm hosting. So to place your order and get your invite, go to sporkful.com book. Thank you. Okay, back to comedian Gary Gullman. And a quick heads up that we drop a couple F-bombs in this next segment. We're also going to talk about mental health and suicide, so please take care when listening. In Act 2 of Gary's comedy career, he went from clever observations about the little things to connecting those little things to his personal life and to larger systemic issues. Act 3 would see him moving more in this direction, talking openly for the first time about his struggles with severe clinical depression. Gary believes he's had depression since he was a child. The first time he sought help was when he was in college. He went on medication and saw professionals in the years that followed. But in 2017, things really cratered. His depression got so bad that he could barely get out of bed. He could no longer work, and he contemplated suicide. At the urging of his psychiatrist, Gary admitted himself to a psychiatric ward. During that time, he received electroconvulsive therapy, among other treatments. He believes it saved his life. A couple years later, he released a comedy special that details all of this. It's a bracingly funny look at that dark period in his life. But while Gary was going through it, his comedy was full of not-so-subtle hints at his mental state. During our conversation, I played him a clip from a set he did on Colbert just a few months before his hospitalization. Why is it so hard to get out of bed? I'll, t I'll tell you why. Because the thing that they don't tell you growing up about life is this. Life, hmm, it's every single day. <laughs> every single day you have to wake up and live and go through all the maintenance and the upkeep, and, oh, I can't wait to have a caregiver. <laughs> the thing that gets me through, though, is donuts and ice cream. I love ice cream, but I have this thing where I have to, I don't want to eat the entire pint, so I say just eat half the pint, but then when I get halfway through, I have this compulsion where I need to leave a flat surface. <laughs> Who, who am I leaving the flats for the day crew? 
But I, I find myself eating it flat. I eat more and then I'll come across a chocolate chunk and I'll have to excavate that. <laughs> then it starts to melt around the edges and that's delicious, so I have to eat that. <laughs> Before I know it, I've hit bottom. Literally and figuratively, I've hit bottom. And I just, I finish the ice cream and I put the fork down. <laughs> I... More often than not, I use a fork to eat ice cream. And uh, if you eat ice cream with a fork, I know you so well. I know you so well. Because my policy is, I'm not washing a spoon until I'm all out of forks. <laughs> and people say, why don't you just wash a spoon? Ha! <laughs> why don't I shower? I probably hadn't listened to that since I, I mean, I, I don't know that I, I probably watched it that night. I may not have. I'm shocked at how good the audience was because I remember it in my head. I, I remember thinking all oh, that, that didn't go very well. I didn't really care for me. And, and now I realize it was my, my uh, depressed brain telling me that they hated me because it sounds like they were having a good time, but also I mean, and I'm sure you noticed this. I was ill. I was really sick. That was the only thing I did that day was go put on a suit and go on the Colbert show. I, I was not functioning as a as an adult, really. And, uh, and yet did not feel comfortable telling anybody why I couldn't why I couldn't wash a, a spoon. And it's a dog whistle if you're depressed. You know exactly what, what I was going through. People have told me that. They were like, oh, yeah, we knew something was up. But I wasn't comfortable mentioning that I was depressed. And yeah, it, like watching it now, no, having some small inkling of what you were going through, like the whole routine felt like almost like a cry for help. <laughs> Yeah. But also incredibly funny. I mean, that as as sad a moment as that was, having that joke was was sort of, I wrote the entire Great Depression special around that joke because that was the first joke that I had about depression. That ice cream bit was a very different type of food joke than the ones Gary did earlier in his career. But even though he says it was about depression in that Colbert appearance, Gary never used the word depressed or depression. Two years later, though, after his treatment, that changed. The word was in the name of his special. It's called The Great Depression. And for the special, he made some small but important tweaks to the ice cream joke. More times than not, I would eat ice cream with a fork, which is like an unofficial symptom of depression. People say, well, why does that mean you're depressed? It may not, but it does mean at least that you did not possess the zest to wash a spoon. I just changed it a little bit by saying, this is what it's like to be depressed. You eat ice cream with a fork, and if you're eating ice cream with a fork, I can pretty much diagnose you. And the context changes when you say, these are, these are some of the unofficial symptoms of depression. So then the tone becomes a little heavier, a little bit more somber. But when you're able to mix the heavy with the humor, you get some really, really special connections with the audience. I always did meet and greets after my shows, and the meet and greets were much different once I started talking about being hospitalized and my depression. They were much more meaningful and, and deeper. So it was a, a great way to evolve as an artist, to, to do something that was, was personal 
and also rewarding in, in that way. There's a version of my career where I just continued to do the, the very clever observational humor that really didn't hit people in a in a deeper way. And I, I'm sure I would have been fine with that. But it, this I feel very fortunate and very grateful that I was able to, to make that, I guess, pivot. The success of The Great Depression and Gary's deeper connection with his audience gave him confidence to continue to tackle more substantive issues in his work. A few months ago, he released his latest special, Born on Third Base. In it, he talks about growing up poor and makes bigger points about income inequality and class. One bit skewers entitled customers at Chipotle who point aggressively at each ingredient as they tell the worker behind the counter what should go in their burrito. Like going to Chipotle, you may not have noticed this before tonight, but I assure you, you will never not notice it after tonight. The people in front of you at Chipotle, as they direct the assembly of their burrito, they wag their fingers <laughs> at other humans. That is staggeringly condescending. Also, completely unnecessary. They know where the corn is. <laughs> you found it. You don't even work here. This Chipotle bit, aside from just being on point about the way that people, a lot of people feel entitled to talk to service workers. Yeah. The whole sort of assembly lineification of right. the dining experience. Yeah. I remember when Chipotle first burst on the scene. The whole idea of like going down the assembly line and yeah. pick, picking your components yeah. felt very special. Yeah. You felt like you, you felt empowered. Totally. But now I sort of feel like there's so many places like that. Yeah. To me, I feel like it's kind of degraded the eating experience a little bit. Interesting. Because it just creates this very sort of like, we need to get you your calories so that you can stay alive <laughs> as fast as possible. And right. we need to get you out of here as fast as yeah. possible because we need to run as many people through this restaurant as we can. It feels a little bit dehumanized to me. No, I get it. I, I, I understand that totally. And it also, so for instance, when I go to, sweet green i always get the shrumami but it's also like the 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 chef has made these choices like there's never been better chefs or more access to them and we can't trust them to design our meals for us and and i can see saying i would like the burrito and please uh pinto instead of black beans right or something right. like that you're hitting on something the whole idea of sort of like when you go to a sit-down restaurant you may have a few small like maybe you'll say oh can you you know hold the onions or whatever yeah, but yeah, like yeah, yeah. basically you're going to order what the chef yeah like that's why you go to the restaurant yes and somehow there's this you know we've been sold this idea that you want to be empowered to create your own <laughs> But in reality, most people don't want that. No, Mo like most I of be us shoved around. <laughs> yeah, I just right. I, like, like it, it's stressful to have to make yes. a lot of decisions. Yes, people get flummoxed by the paradox of choice. Totally, I have this idea of what my mentality would be like as a chef. That I would be the type of chef that would look through the double doors out into the the dining room, and if somebody was putting salt or pepper or anything, I would fly into a rage <laughs> and, and would have to be held back. Yeah. But, but like, that's like the equivalent of like people tell me they listen to my podcast on 1.5 times speed. Oh, what an insult. That's the equivalent of dumping a bunch of salt on the chef's entree. Can you imagine someone put on one of your comedy specials uh, and was like, I think it's better if I pause it every 30 seconds? 
No, like the timing is part of the thing. You're absolutely right. It's the same thing. If you fast forward or speed up the pauses, you're yeah. fucking with our timing. Yeah, but you're also fucking with your own enjoyment and your own quality of life. I, I, and what are you getting from it? Another second to scroll in your stupid tweet. That's right. Twitter. <laughs> X. Ugh. <laughs> So Gary's new comedy special takes on entitled Chipotle customers. But his most pointed commentary on class comes in a bit about the free breakfast program he was in at school when he was a kid. Students like Gary were offered a choice between a variety pack size box of cereal or a Pop-Tart. The Pop-Tart was just a complete F.U. to the poor kids who were eating it. First of all, it was one Pop-Tart. I knew they came in packs of two. I'm poor. I am not stupid. <laughs> and then the other thing about the Pop-Tart, they had enough frosting to spread it all the way to the edge. <laughs> I'm sure there was a person in the factory who said, hey boss, we have, we have a lot of extra frosting today. Do you want to spread it all the way to the edge for this next batch? And he said, do you want these kids to ever stop sucking at the government teat? That bitter crust will remind them of what their futures are going to look like. I love it when something small can evoke an idea that's, that's bigger than itself. For instance, the latest show, I thought, all right, Pop-Tarts are a very easy target. But the real thing for me with Pop-Tarts is that it's this really interesting class commentary. Certain jokes have to vie for a roster spot in your act. And so if a joke is just surface, it's probably not going to make it to the, to the special because I can write those all day long. They're very easy for me. But when a joke can talk about okay, the Pop-Tart, but also talk about this thing where we've been ignored or slighted in some way, then it earns a roster spot because it's, it's doing two things. What is your relationship with Pop-Tarts today, Gary? Oh, we don't, we don't, we don't see each other. We don't have, I mean, this is my, this thing of self-denial, like I, sometimes I think my life is, and I really believe this, since I've been fulfilling myself for the past six years, I think, man, is life so wonderful, and I have to dial it down a little bit, because if I were able to eat anything I wanted, it would be too pleasant, and I would feel guilty and ashamed. So if I could eat sushi and french fries all, all the time, it would be decadence. I would be. I would be. I would be like the, the the last days of the Roman Empire. And do you think that comes from growing up poor, or certainly, battling, yeah. or battling depression, or both? I mean, both. The anxiety of growing up poor lends itself to depression, and there's all these fears, and it, and it's a it's a worry about your your security. And and capitalism has this great mechanism to keep everybody on their toes so that you keep having to hoard it because you don't know if there's going to be a rainy day or you'll find out that your business has gone obsolete. If you leave this interview with one feeling, Gary, I wanted it to be the feeling that that you've made it. <laughs> and so I, I, I bought you this box of Pop-Tarts. Oh, wow. This is awesome. Now, I'm not going to tell you what to eat and not eat. Yeah. 
but I would like to encourage you to have a pop tart. No, I will have one of these. I yeah, think, I think you've earned it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I will, I will toast it. I mean, I ate them raw when I was a, when I was. A, I want you I was to toast it, and yeah. I and I give you permission to enjoy I, it. I really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's Gary Gullman. His new special is streaming on Max. It's called Born on Third Base. Max is also where you can find The Great Depression. And you can check out Gary's memoir, which came out in September. It's called Misfit: Growing Up Awkward in the Eighties. Next week on the show, we're kicking off our series about the making of my cookbook. The series is called Anything's Possible, and episodes one and two drop on Monday, March 4th. After listening to this series, I don't think you're ever going to look at a cookbook the same way again. In the meantime, please remember you can pre-order the book right now at sporkful.com book. While you're waiting for those two episodes, check out last week's show when we play a part in a restaurant makeover. That one's up now. This episode was produced by me, along with managing producer... Emma Morgenstern. And senior producer... Andres O'Hara. It was edited by... Nora Ritchie. Our engineer is... Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher Studios. Our executive producers are Nora Ritchie and Colin Anderson. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And this is Larkin from Ithaca, New York, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. <laughs>